Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. I have to tell you, this is the last episode of this series. We're packing a lot in. I'm recording from the historic Mount Washington Hotel in Bretton Woods in New Hampshire, where I've been at an eclectic gathering of intellectuals and finance folks commemorating the 75th anniversary of that famous Bretton Woods conference when the Allied powers got together after World War II to set down the rules for a new world economic order. And they created key institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Later, you'll hear me chatting with a former US executive director of the IMF about the kind of global economic cooperation we need today. I also caught up with the economist Nouriel Roubini. We talked about why he hates cryptocurrencies and what's going to cause the next financial crisis. But first, we have the battle over the future of the global economy that's happening right now on the Mexican border. You'll remember President Trump shocked everyone, threatening to slap big tariffs on Mexico for failing to stop the flow of Central American migrants from South to North. Now, after emergency talks, the Americans gave the Mexican president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, known by his initials AMLO, 45 days to do better tackling the problem. He's now sent a new federal force down to police the country's porous and geographically messy border with Guatemala, where people and goods have previously flowed freely. Bloomberg Economy reporter Eric Martin decided to go see what was happening. Here, on the banks of the Suchate River, there is a constant buzz of activity. Locals make their living hauling goods onto rickety rafts made of plywood and rubber tires. The cargo depends on the direction. From Mexico to Guatemala, it's usually cans of cooking oil or bags of rice. Heading the other way, it's mostly people. Many of them are bound for the U.S. All of it, technically speaking, is illegal. Still, the customs and immigration officials patrolling the international bridge have ignored it. That has helped make the river a key economic hub in the poorest region in Mexico. Berta Alicia Fuentes has been running a supply store in the Mexican border town of Ciudad Hidalgo for the past four decades. She told me that the river contraband is the only source of jobs for towns on both the Mexican and Guatemalan sides of the river. Everyone lives off of this. What happens if it's gone? Forget it. Everyone would be poor. The merchandise needs to continue to flow. But this river trade may not last much longer. Last month, the first of thousands of National Guard troops arrived as part of AMLO's plans. The soldiers came with their M16s and told us that they didn't want us to work. Rooster is a 31-year-old raft captain who didn't want to give me his real name for fear of reprisals. He's been making a living moving goods and people across the river for the past decade. If they make it more difficult for us to transport merchandise, we need to figure out how to resolve the problem. The new show of force on the border is meant to stem the tide of migrants escaping violence and poverty in Central America. Among them is Maynor Guillen, a 19-year-old Honduran migrant who told me he's making his second attempt in less than a week to reach the U.S. 
I was deported a week ago and I started to come back the same day. There's no work where I live. The migrants crossing the river are for the most part from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. But people from Haiti, Cuba, Africa, and even India have recently begun appearing in greater numbers. Many arrive to Central America or South America by plane and then cross through Mexico. AMLO admits that parts of Mexico's 700-mile frontier with Guatemala and Belize aren't well policed, and he's promised to secure them. His efforts have started to pay off, at least from the U.S. perspective. Customs and Border Protection said in July that the number of people stopped at the border fell 28% from May to June. While the numbers tend to decline in the summer, that's more than the usual drop. Trump, at least, seems pleased. And he's doing a great job for Mexico, because the Mexican people were very upset with all of these tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, walking through Mexico. Despite President Trump's enthusiasm, there are many people who are skeptical about whether Mexico can stop migrants in the long term. Among them is Duncan Wood. He's the director of the Mexico Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington. He's been studying Mexico for more than two decades. You know, Mexico has now become a much more difficult piece of terrain to, uh, to, to get across. So I think that that will provide a deterrent effect in the, in the short term. But in the long term, I feel as though we're going to see similar numbers of migrants going through Mexico. They will learn to get around the, uh, the various checkpoints. Mexican soldiers visited the Suchate River a week after the government promised to step up efforts to patrol the border. But locals told me they quickly withdrew. Arguments with the raft operators threatened to spill over into violence. Mexico is likely to face more challenges as it attempts to balance the protection of human rights against the pressure from the American government. It's understandable why we saw the calls from the United States government for Mexico to do more. What I think uh, is perhaps a mistake is to push so much of the burden onto Mexico at a time when Mexico has severe financial and fiscal restrictions. Mexico's economy is showing signs of weakness. After years of modest, if unspectacular growth, GDP is slowing, thanks in part to Trump's unpredictable behavior. Threatening to rip up NAFTA and impose tariffs have hurt investor confidence. While Trump has been focused on undocumented migration, the levels of people arriving to the U.S. are actually below the records from a decade ago. In recent years, as many Mexicans have returned to Mexico as left for the U.S. Now, there's a risk that Trump's pressure causes the country's economy to weaken. That could result in fewer jobs in poor communities, like those in Chiapas, and force more Mexicans to join Hondurans, Salvadorans, and Guatemalans in seeking work in the U.S. Here's Duncan Wood again. Overall, the, uh, the deterrent measures that we're seeing being put in place by Mexico are probably not sustainable. So uh, ultimately, I think this provides a short-term solution at the very best. And uh, we're likely to see that in the medium to long term, the problem continues as long as the underlying fundamental crisis in Central America is there. Migrants from Central America are fleeing some of the highest murder rates in the world. 
Many used to work in agriculture, but have seen their crops devastated by climate change. Their governments spend little on social services. Citizens have few or no job opportunities, and plans to develop the region could take years. Ultimately, no amount of security on the Mexico-Guatemala border is likely to stop undocumented migration as long as the economic attraction of the U.S. remains. It would be ironic if Trump's heavy-handed efforts to stop the flow of migrants end up driving even greater numbers to seek a better life north of the Mexican border. You heard there from one of the front lines in the battle over the future of the global economy. I had a chat here with Meg Lunziger, a former U.S. executive director at the IMF, who's now a public policy fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington. We started by talking about the spirit of Bretton Woods and whether we could revive it to confront the big international economic challenges the world faces today. It is pretty amazing when you look back that uh, these delegates committed their governments to treaty organizations, meaning you give up a little bit of sovereignty by signing on to a treaty, but they all got their home governments uh, to ratify it. And these organizations have continued and have had to change in many, many different ways, but still been very effective over the years at dealing with crises. With that said, it's hard to predict the future and how we know today what's going to drive us to agree. We don't have that same sense of fear. In some respects, we ought to, because there are a lot of different things going on that create fear. But overall, in the political classes and the governments, there's not a unifying sense of what that overarching problem is and what we should do about it. And you see it every day in the press. You're reporting on it, just how we all just see the world so completely different. I mean, by we, our, our leaders, and then uh, there's very little chance that there'd be anything this dramatic, as, same as the uh, Bretton Woods institutions coming out. But that was one thing, this volume that we put together at the Bretton Woods Committee this year. If you read Paul Volcker's uh, first uh, essay, it's all about the spirit of Bretton Woods, not that he's urging global leaders to come up with a whole new system, but that he's urging them to remember we need to cooperate if we're going to handle problems, if we're going to anticipate what's coming, if we're going to find ways to all be part of the solution, which at times means making a commitment to others so that you all benefit. And that's hard to find these days. And of course, as most people listening will know, but that's the, the former Fed chair uh, from, from back in the 80s, Paul Volcker. Um, we had a, a report this week from the Mexican border talking about the irony that you could have uh, really strenuous efforts to cut down immigration and illegal immigration at the, at the Mexican-American border, with the Mexican government under great pressure from President Trump to do that. But at the same time, President Trump's economic policies threatened to hurt the Mexican economy and actually push more people into trying to emigrate uh, to the U.S. Now, that's a long way. I mean, you, if you listen to the footage, it's a long way from this sort of pleasant hotel at the top of the mountain. But it struck me that some of the issues involved in Donald, Tr Donald Trump's policy on Mexico, on immigration and his success uh, does symbolize some of the, ch the change in the environment since 1944. You talked about fear being the animating 
factor for the leaders then. You know, now, instead of people being terrified of economic nationalism and wanting never to have that conflict again, uh, you have globalization that people feel has not necessarily worked for them. There's kind of a distance between these global institutions and people in countries like the US and different European countries. Um, and you have a, and you have immigration figuring much more prominently than we might have thought. We are very focused in, when we think about globalization all these years, we've been very focused on goods trade and, and how do you deal with flows of money? And maybe did we not think enough about what flows of people were going to mean for individual communities and for, and for our politics? We didn't think at all about that, to be perfectly honest. Certainly not the big migration flows that we've all seen in our countries. I mean, why is the UK leaving the EU? I mean, immigration has been one of the big reasons, and it's been a fear in in the U.S. too. It's a little hard for me because I'm an immigrant too. Because uh, a lot of them about in America. Yeah, a lot of us are here and love this country and have made it a home and wanted to do well. So it's a little hard, you know. And I mean, the immigrants I see, who are frankly taking care of my lawn and cleaning my house, they're here and they're working hard and they're doing a lot of things that. Uh, many Americans really have no interest in doing. So I welcome that they're here, they're working hard. And I think the U.S. has to be a little more open to this. Uh, With that said, I guess a lot of people feel jobs are being taken away. I'm not quite sure where the jobs that have kept the middle class going, you know, manufacturing services, that a whole lot of that is being taken away by immigrants coming from Central America. I, I don't get that sense. So at times it's hard for me to puzzle where this fear is coming from. And sometimes I feel like it's an overly manufactured fear, uh, the political classes on President Trump, that it's not really a threat. Now, at the same time, we also have, because of his announcements, his policies, this effort of more to come to the U.S., the families get here before the borders completely shut down. So we've kind of uh, created this conundrum for ourselves. And as you pointed out uh, in the beginning, by some of the other policies, we've made it more difficult for these countries to thrive, to grow, you know, threatening to leave NAFTA. So of course, that's going to incentivize more to come to the United States for a better life. So uh, I think there needs to be a little bit deeper thinking of all the inner linkages of the policies in this administration. Well, it's interesting because we have one thing we heard about uh, in this conference is some of the history of the Bretton Woods negotiations. And it was this kind of cutthroat battle between the American representative, Harry Dexter White, and the British representative, John Maynard Keynes. And there's plenty of books and, and the stories about their uh, competition. Um, but it was all about US, about the US installing itself at the center of these institutions and the center of the new system with everything revolving around the dollar. Um, And again, what strikes you as a difference now is that's in a lot of the conversations we have is about the absence of U.S. leadership. You have institutions that were kind of established to give the U.S. the ultimate decision making, the ultimate veto power. You used to sit there with your veto in the IMF. I don't think you used it very much, but people cared a lot about what you believed because you were the U.S. Um, Do you think China is going to fill that vacuum of sort of international economic leadership? Apparently, the they're very interested in this history about Bretton Woods. They've been, yeah, they've heard been that. we yeah. heard that the history of the negotiations, they've been, they'd sold more copies in China of this American academics book um, than they have in the US. 
You know, that's very interesting, Stephanie, because in my experience, the uh, the Chinese want to be part of, they want to be at the center of the system. They want to have a clear voice in the decision-making in the system, but they don't really want to be number one. And I think it's because they recognize they're really not at the point where they can undertake that type of global leadership. Do they want their currency, the yuan, the renminbi, to become the global currency? No, they certainly don't. What do they do in their financial sector? They control things. They control inflows and outflows. They impose capital controls. They lift capital controls. Their monetary policy has zero independence, right? It's, they're at the behest of the government, whether they loosen the credit or tighten the credit. So um, I think China is nowhere in the position to undertake that leadership role in terms of guiding institutions or, you know, pulling all these countries together. And it's interesting that you do get international collaborations often uh, when, as someone said to me, uh, when you have politicians actually looking out of a, looking, standing on a window ledge, looking down, that's when they start to uh, the fear. do serious yes, things, the fear looking down at the abyss. But even in our time, uh, in the late 90s in the US Treasury, there was a kind of healthy competition among international leaders to have initiatives and policy proposals. And then you come back from the summit and you say, I've won with my proposal for development or this and that. I mean, it's amazing that that is not where the action is for most politicians no, these days. No, you're right. That's it, not going to help them domestically. And that's all that matters now is win the next domestic election, right? Get the leadership of the Conservative Party, win the election in 2020, right? Get a bigger majority in the parliament. So, um, Well, no. I, I fear they were surrounded by lots of people doing very exciting, innovative financial things. So we shouldn't sound too much like... Uh, sort of uh, middle-aged people bemoaning that how terrible the world's got. <laughs> There's right. been plenty right. of good things. But yeah. Meg uh, Lunziger, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. Pleasure. Here at Bretton Woods, I bumped into another old friend, the economist Nouriel Roubini, who's a professor at NYU and head of Roubini Macro Associates. Recently, he's been a very public critic of cryptocurrencies, now, since the conference was organised by Bancor, a company heavily involved with cryptocurrencies, I wondered whether he was surprised to be invited. You've been coming out very strongly against digital currencies recently. Why, why are you so worried about them? Well, I'm not actually worried about them. I, I think that the term cryptocurrencies is a misnomer. For something to be a currency has to be a unit of account, a means of payment, a stable store of value. Um, nobody's pricing anything in Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. Uh, Bitcoin can do only five transactions per second. Uh, the Visa network does 25,000 per second. And it's not a stable store of value uh, because the price can go up or down 10, 20% in a day. That's why even at the blockchain or crypto conferences where I go, they don't even accept their Bitcoin for payment of the fee of the conference because the profit margin could be wiped out by a sudden movement of the price. So no merchant is going to be using it. So it's a misnomer. Uh, they're not really currencies. They had a bubble in 2017, uh, collapsed in 2018. There's been a rally this year, but Bitcoin is still more than 50% below the peak. The other top 10 are 80% below the peak. And I think there is a little bit of a fad but in uh, these crypto unquote currencies, they're not going anywhere, they're useless. And I think there's a bigger fad in blockchain that in my view is the most overhyped uh, technology in human history. 
and no better than a glorified uh, spreadsheet. But that's a different story. <laughs> well, we talked last in last week's um, podcast. We actually talked to the French finance minister Bruno Le Maire about Libra and the extraordinary amount of attention that the G7 finance ministers, the G20, you mentioned President Trump, have all been talking about this one proposal by one company. Uh, do you think Libra sort of justifies the amount of attention it's getting? Uh, to some extent. Um, first of all, uh, again, they pretend that it's going to be a blockchain tool, but it's not. It's going to be fully centralized. So this is a gimmick as a way to try to avoid uh, unquote uh, regulation and so on. Uh, secondly, you know, there are 2 billion users of Facebook. Most of them are anonymous. Anybody can sign up with a fake name. Uh, suppose that you sign up and then you can take some of this Libra from US and send it to Panama or any other offshore financial center. And again, all the rules about anti-money laundering or know your customers are breached. Uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, financial officials are worried about it. This is not a little small crypto scam. It's, you know, uh, one of the largest companies in the world wants to create uh, essentially a money uh, function without having a banking license, without proper anti-money laundering, without proper know your customer stuff. And they're saying we're not going to allow it. Rightly so. And it was striking. They're in not the going to allow it. The Facebook literature about this. And of course, they always say they're only going to have a small number of votes in this. It's going to be a lot of other players if it goes ahead. Um, I share some of your skepticism, but it's extraordinary when you look at the, the, the what they're claiming about it. They'll say they say we, you should be able to. It should be just as easy to transfer money wherever you are in the world to wherever in the world. You shouldn't have any any borders, and that does seem an extraordinary thing that you would expect to be able to do that without any of the normal uh, obstacles to uh, to cross-border banking or any of those things. Now, I've heard you talk quite a lot about what the seeds are for the next global financial crisis and how soon that might be coming. I mean, finally, if you think about how that might play out, in those kind of environments, it's really, in the, when that happens, it's really important to have some kind of global cooperation. Do you think we're not going to see that this time or we will still have the right kind of collaboration between central banks, even if governments are more uh, at odds with one another? Well, if the next crisis occurs because of a combination of excessive credit and debt and some shocks and things like a trade or attack war between U.S. and China could be the trigger of it or another oil shock if U.S. and Iran go to war could be the trigger of it. I think that, first of all, uh, we'll have less cooperation than the past, but also the national policies are going to be more constrained compared to the past. You know, fiscal policy is constrained because now deficit and debts are higher than before. Monetary policy is constrained because we don't have much headroom. You know, the Fed has 250 basis points of rate cuts before they go to zero, while in Europe, ECB, SMB, Riksbank, or in Japan, the BOJ are already negative rates. They can go a little more negative, but not much more. <laughs> and the ability to backstop and bail out banks, corporates, or even households is constrained for two reasons. One is there is now a political backlash against bailing out the bankers, Wall Street, the city, the corporations. So I don't think it's going to be as easy. And secondly, you know, there is this doom loop between uh, banks and the sovereigns. Sovereigns are so indebted that a lot of their debt is in the hands of the banks and the banks are 
themselves fragile because of the exposure to the sovereign and therefore this loop between some of the banks implies that it's going to be very hard to have the same backstop of the financial system you got during the global financial crisis. So when the stuff is going to hit the fan, unfortunately, compared to 10 years ago when we had all the policy bullies, we've used a lot of them, monetary, fiscal, credit, backstop, bailout. This time around, it's going to be constrained. Christine Lagarde's going to go from the International Monetary Fund to the European Central Bank. Do you think she can hold together the Eurozone through the next recession or potentially crisis the way that Mario Draghi has? Um, I think it's an excellent choice. She's eminently qualified. I have great respect for her. And she, like Mario Draghi, is certainly committed to do whatever it takes to keep the Eurozone together. But there are things that are not under the control of the ECB. Say, suppose that during the next crisis, Italy, the output collapses, as it is already now in a recession, deficit and debts go essentially higher and higher. If Italy, with a populist government, is doing policy of no austerity and no reform, they're not going to qualify for the European uh, bailout mechanism that are the ESM, nor for what is called the OMT, that is the bailout package that the ECB has, because the condition for the OMT is essentially that uh, the country is under effectively a program, IMF style of program, austerity and reform. And the other big problem with Italy is that Greece was easy problem, 200 billion euro public debt, and there was a Troika program of 200 billion euro could backstop uh, both Greece and its own creditors. But Italy is too big to fail, but also too too big to be saved. Uh, The Italian public debt is 2.3 trillion euros, so there is no IMF or EU or ECB or Troika program can backstop Italy. So if, if something were to happen in Italy, either the Italian decide to tighten their belts, like Greece did in that game of chicken in 2015, Greece blinked, or otherwise Italy may jump off the cliff and leave the Eurozone and that may provide an existential threat to the Eurozone itself. We don't know what's going to happen, but at some point there will be a clash between Italy and not just the EU, but before even the EU, between Italy and the markets, when essentially there'll be a sudden stop, money is going to flow out of the banks, run on the banks, run on public debt, and then Italian will decide this is what we want or we're going to accept the constraints of being in a monetary union with a common currency. We don't know what's going to be the end game of that uh, particular drama, of that slow motion train wreck, but we might have a slow motion train wreck. Right, so we've got to watch acid price bubbles and Italy like a hawk to see what's coming next. And US and China and US and Iran. Yes, but Italy, that hole in the Eurozone that still is there, even though there's supposedly it's been, the, 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 it's been fixed, uh, you're quite right that that is the key issue that any country yep. that would qualify, if you have a run, a really existential run on the, on the currency or a panic around Italy, uh, it would still have to qualify for that support yeah. to get the support. Absolutely. So you face exactly the same issue. It's too big to fail, but potentially too big to save. Nuria Rubini, thanks very much. It's been pouring with rain in Bretton Woods up in the New Hampshire mountains uh, the last day or so, but I think the Lots sun... Lots of liquidity the, here. <laughs> Lots of liquidity, but the sun's finally coming out, so we should get some fresh air. Thank you. Great being with you today. Thanks for listening to our first season of Stephanomics. We'll be back in October. But if you're just discovering our show now, you can find past episodes on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so it can reach more listeners. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics right through the summer, follow at Economics on Twitter. And you can also find me on at MyStephanomics. 
The Mexico story in this episode was reported and written by Eric Martin. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Bruce Douglas. Eric's original story on this topic was edited by Anne Reifenberg and David Papadopoulos. Special thanks to the organisers of the Bretton Woods at 75 conference and also to Meg Lunziger, Nuriel Rubini, Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, José Orozco and Cynthia Barrera. Our executive producer is Scott Landman and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. <laughs>